Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. It's good to see everybody. We've got uh, folks that are quarantining. So continue to be praying for those that we know, our, our family, who are coming down with COVID. It's going to keep happening until we get a vaccine. Uh, occasionally people are going to get sick and, and people are going to have to take precautions. Uh, when that happens, make sure that you're lifting them up, uh, that, they would, that they would not fall prey uh, to COVID the way that Eric did. Obviously, we were all very concerned about that. Um, and, uh, and I think that was very sobering for a lot of us. Uh, but we are very thankful to have Eric back. We've been praying for you. We love you, man. Um, be careful with him. I'm like extra cautious around him. I'm like tiptoeing. I don't want to knock him over. <laughs> but uh, man, we love you, and uh, we need you here. So um, we're, we're grateful that you're back. It, it, it brings me a lot of motivation just to be here this morning to know that you're here. So um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. We're going to try to finish out Acts chapter 17. And the reason is because I need time to study for the fall retreat, and I don't want to leave us hanging here in Athens. And so we've got to get to the end of chapter 17 so we can put a bow and a ribbon on this, uh, this series of, uh, of messages on Paul in, uh, in the city of Athens. And so um, today's message is called Preaching to a City, Preaching to a City. Our last message was called Burden for a City. Uh, today we're going to be addressing this topic of how to preach to the city that we minister to, right? We're in a city. We're in an urban center. There's lots of different kinds of people here. And we want to know how to best minister and preach the gospel to them uh, when we recognize that there is a burden upon Christians to reach souls. My son is an, is an avid reader. And uh, he was a reader before we instituted the dollar a book policy. Uh, we, we decided uh, recently that we would, we would offer our kids, for every chapter book that they finish, Clementine and Shepard, uh, we would give them a dollar. Okay? This might be a bad idea. <laughs> um, because they are, their reading intake has gone way up. I think I owe each of them about 10 or $11 over the last month. <laughs> Shepard just had a birthday, and he got a book. I don't know who bought him this book. I would never buy him this book. On, on the Titanic. Right? When I think of the Titanic, I think of Leonardo DiCaprio and him on the front of the boat, and I just can't get that out of my mind. I would never promote my son reading the Titanic, but, but someone bought it for him, and he was super interested in it. And uh, he went to bed one night. It was like, you know, they go to bed around 7.30 or 8. And I went to go check on them at, before Eva and I went to bed, and he was still up because he was finishing the Titanic book. He read it in just a in just a few hours, and uh, he was fascinated by it. And um, I, was, I was reminded of a story about the Titanic. So, you ready for an illustration about the Titanic? <laughs> so apparently, apparently, um, when, the, when, the, when the, everyone was very alarmed, the, the, the boat was beginning to take on water, right? was, the idea was that the Titanic was not sinkable. Correct? You let know that, right? Like they promoted that before people ever bought tickets to get on. This is the unsinkable boat, right? And they were so convinced that they were unsinkable 
that it, was, it wasn't until the, the captain had knee, uh, almost knee-high water before he was, he, he was determined that they needed to evacuate the boat. In fact, it kept them from being able to send for help uh, as soon as they should have. If they would have sent for help sooner, then lives would have been spared. But the captain was so convinced that this ship was unsinkable that it wasn't until he was knee-deep in water before, before he began to panic. And sometimes I think Christians are just that oblivious. I think sometimes we are so happy and content with the comforts of our life that when we look around at our world, that we don't recognize that it's sinking. We don't, we don't look around Kansas City and say to ourselves, uh, man, look at the depravity, look at the sin, look at the wickedness. God, how, what must I do? What must I do? And I think because of that, we miss out on lots of opportunities. Paul enters the city of Athens. And it was a place, we talked about this, this is a place that he should have enjoyed. He should have taken some respite while he was in the city of Athens. This should have been a bit of a vacation for him, away from the mission. The boys were still back in Berea. He was there by himself. He had a chance to walk around, have a good time, maybe check out some of the major landmarks, right? But when he got there and he looked around and he saw places like the Pantheon and he saw things like the Temple to Zeus, And he saw these places, he began to recognize that this is a city that is wholly given over to idolatry. And the only thing that he could, conclusion that he could come to is, is I need to go preach. I need to go preach. I'm so burdened for my city that I have to speak up. I have to tell people about Christ. Paul's experience in Athens simultaneously broke his heart and stirred a fire within him. So here's a key point to get us going today. Key point number one. You have to see souls before you can reach souls. You have to see souls before you can reach souls. We look at one another every day. We go into the grocery store. We walk about our city. We get on the bus. We go to school. And we see people in terms of a transfer or an exchange. Like if this person has something to offer me, I I might engage them for a moment. But if they don't, I'm just going to pass them by, and I'm going to move on, and I'm, I'm going to engage those people that I need to engage with today, and, and that'll be about as much as I, I want or need to do. And we don't look around at people and consider them in terms of the way that God made them. We don't see them as souls. We don't see them in terms of their eternal reality. And because we don't, we miss out on all the opportunities that God puts in front of us. And until we start seeing souls for what they actually are, we aren't going to be able to reach them. We can talk about the mission all we want. We can come in here and conceptualize what it means to be missions-minded, and it's going to fall on deaf ears, and our life will not manifest that reality. It just won't. It'll only be a concept. When you leave this room and you step out onto the street and you start walking around, that is when the mission should become a reality, when you see people in terms of souls. That has to happen. So Paul stirred up. Why is he so stirred up? It's because he saw himself as a slave to the message of Jesus Christ and and a slave to the lost souls around him. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, Paul writes to Corinth and he talks about this burden and he says, this might mess me up, hold on, let me gather myself. This is a powerful passage. For, 
So I'm not going to be able to get through this without crying. Just prepare yourself. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? In other words, if I preach only out of obligation because someone expects it from me, out of duty, like this is what Christians do, then it's empty. Verily that, when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And so the question for today's message, preaching to a city, is once I have a burden for souls, how do I do that? How do I preach? What do I say? How do I approach people? What should my mindset be? Once that burden is stirred within you and you know that you've got to do something, how do you approach that? So today's message will be fairly pragmatic. But it'll be rooted, it'll be rooted in this idea that souls have eternal value and they're worth speaking up about. They're, they're worth intervening for. They're worth interceding for. It's worth preaching the gospel everywhere we go to every creature because Christ loves people so much. Let's pray. And then we will, we will continue on, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you today. And, uh, and so, Lord, I, I pray as we continue between verse 18 and 34 when we finish out this chapter, Lord, that there would be something gained. That, Lord, we would be provoked. That we would, we would be considerate of all the ways in which we need to go to the lost and, and what our mindset should be and, and how we should hold ourselves, posture ourselves, think about people, the people that you love so much. Lord, help us to not be negligent, both in to understand the reality of heaven and hell and, and, and the, 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 the eternal value of a human soul, not just in those terms, but we consider it also of how we should go to them and how we should speak to them. And how we, should, how we should think about the audience that you're putting in front of us. So Lord, help us. Teach us. Make our ability to go to people very simplistic. So we don't have to be concerned. We don't, so many of us are, are so afraid to speak up for your namesake. We don't want to sound stupid. And, and we, don't, we don't want to be judged, perhaps. And so, Lord, we're, we are negligent. But Lord, I just pray that the truth of our mission would be so simple and so pure and so worthwhile to us that when we leave here today, that it would just, living out the gospel and preaching it everywhere we go would just be matter of fact. It would just be integrated so, so seamlessly into everything that we do that we would never again be concerned what people think about us, that we'd be set free from that burden. Paul says it, I'm free from all men. But yet we are a slave to all men and that they all need the gospel. So give us that mindset. Help us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So the very first thing we're going to do is we're going to consider the audience. Consider the audience. So we know that Paul, when he would go to a city, the first thing that he would do is he would find the synagogue, right? He had a strategy when he went to to new places, right? He had a strategy for how he was going to preach the gospel. But we've, we've followed Paul long enough now on these missions trips that we know that things don't always go the way that he plans them, right? So he'll have a strategy and a plan in mind, but that, that strategy will change. A door will shut here, a door will open there, and he has to be considerate all the time of the audience that God puts in front of him. Not the one that he establishes or works for, but the one that God puts in front of him. So Paul, he has a strategy, but he's flexible enough to adapt to opportunities as they present themselves to him. So his audience was constantly changing based on how he was led from moment to moment. So key point number two for today, write this down and then we'll look at it. The missions-minded believer can and will adapt to new audiences and opportunities. Some of us are very inflexible. You know that, right? You've got your way. You've got your habits, right? Especially those of us who are of more of a, of a, a type A personality, right? Or may, may, sometimes, like, even the most introverted people have the things in their life that they go to, and they do habits that make them comfortable, things that they establish. This is what my day will look like, and if it goes this way, everything will be great. And then, you know, when God mixes those things up, or trial, or suffering comes, we're afraid, we're, we're inflexible, we're afraid to adapt. So much of our fear is wrapped up in just inter, the interference of life. We get fearful just because our day gets interfered with. And Paul, he doesn't live that way. He doesn't think that way. He's the type of believer that no matter what comes across his path, whatever door opens or whatever door closes, he has the ability to adapt to the audience that God puts in front of him. So while Paul is in Athens, he finds himself ready and prepared when the audience he is preaching to changes, look at verse 17. The first audience that he finds is a spiritual audience. Okay, he goes and looks for a spiritual audience. And so initially he's preaching in the synagogue to the Jews. Verse 17 says, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons. Now we know that Paul went to the synagogue because he was looking for people who were monotheistic in their spiritual perspective that maybe had a background in biblical ideas and concepts, so that he would have a starting place to share the gospel with them. It would be an easier jump, perhaps, to the the messianic prophecies and the fact that Jesus Christ came, and the gospel would be maybe less of a far reach. And so he would start in the synagogue. That's That's the type of people that he was familiar with. And he would go there and preach. Now, here in Athens, there's a synagogue. But we know that this is a city that's given wholly over to idolatry. Remember that? Remember how he says that? Remember that's his conviction? This is a city that's wholly given over to idolatry? And so we might, we might hypothesize that the, that the synagogue in Athens was highly affected by the environment that they were surrounded by. We might even suggest, we don't know, we might even suggest that the synagogue in Athens was lukewarm. Right? Right? which would remind us a lot of the spiritual audience that we face today in America. There are churches everywhere. And there are churches everywhere in our nation that are so highly affected by the culture that surrounds them 
that they, they, only, they only just take on slowly over time the corrosion of the sin that's all around them, the entertainment, the, the creature comforts that surround them, and they become like the people that they should be ministering to. We refer to these Christians as nominal Christians. Christians that come to church, they sit in the pew, they hear a message, they go home, they watch the football game, and they go on with the worldly lifestyle that they, that they want to live from day to day throughout the week. This is the majority of Christians in America. We know that, right? And we refer to them as lukewarm. Some of those lukewarm Christians, I'm, I'm not too proud to say, are in this room. Some of them are us, nominal in our faith. So this is a cultural experience that, that, that many of us are familiar with. And I want to say this. Paul was not afraid to go and preach to spiritual people. I want to I just, just real quick, how many people in this room grew up going to church, having a spiritual life, but have only just within the last one, two, or three years discovered what it really means to follow Jesus Christ? You only just now discovered that. Okay, so as I look around, keep your hands up, as I look around the room, I would say that about one-third of the college and young adults ministry is comprised of people who grew up nominal, grew up lukewarm, grew up spiritual. And it wasn't until someone came to them and showed them what it meant to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that they began to take their faith seriously. So I want us to understand this. Listen to me very carefully. In our contemporary world, it's very important that the college and young adult ministry at Midtown Baptist Temple would focus at least some of our attention on a spiritual audience. An audience who would at least initially say to you, yeah, I know, I know I'm a Christian, I, I grew up in church, I know Jesus. And that would be your initial conversation with them. But we need to be faithful enough to continue to press in and make people prove that out. Because listen to me, it is the spiritual audience today in America that is the most inoculated to the truth of the gospel. Oh, I, I prayed a prayer at, you know, at a camp when I, was, when I was 12. Yes, I'm a Christian. But they've only ever just struggled with sin, and there's no fruit in their life that they're actually a believer. And they have every reason to question their faith when they lay their head down on the pillow at night. And it is our responsibility as a ministry to go to those people. They're on our campuses. They're in our coffee shops. And this is why I'm very serious about over the next year. I, there's, a, there's a group of men here that have taught me and shown me that we need to be investing in seminaries. That there are young people that go to seminary in our city who need faithful believers to come alongside them and provoke them to faith. Because some of them, honestly, might not even know Christ. They can sit in a lecture every single day and hear someone tell them about the history of the Old Testament. But for many people, the reality of the gospel has never been true in their life. We have to go to, to, to a spiritual audience. Next, we need to go to a, a cultural audience. It says that Paul went to the market daily with them that met with him. So Paul also found himself within the cultural cross-section of the people of Athens. 
The market would have been, uh, in that day and age, in a place like Athens, would have been something like if you took the plaza and you mixed it with the grocery store and you mixed it with the coffee shop, right, the community that you get in a coffee shop, the interactions that you have in a place like that, um, and, and, and the necessity of a grocery store, right? Because people have to go there, and they're there they're day in and day out. They might even be looking for excuses to go, to just go talk to their friends and be there. The marketplace was a cultural cross-section of people in that society. And it would have looked just like every kind of person of every walk of life that makes up that city. They would have been there at the market. And he was going there daily to preach, and so what that means for us and what we need to take away from that is that we have equivalent spaces to that in our lives as well. Places that are cultural cross-sections. For many of us, that's the, the university campus where there's people of every walk of life that are just walking back and forth, maybe less so this semester, but they're there, they're there. For many of us, it means that, that, that we need to go find the, the nearest basketball court where people are coming together and they're gathering just to play, just to have fun. And we need to go there and we need to meet those people. We need to get to know them. We need to invite them to Bible study. We need to introduce them to a relationship with Christ. Some of us, we need to be frequenting that coffee shop every single, every single morning before school. You need to learn to drink the cheapest drink on the menu, by the way. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to go broke and you're not going to be able to afford the fall retreat. Right? So... Less milk, less sugar, less money. Okay? Learn to drink black coffee. Tea, perhaps. Okay? But go to the coffee shop. Why? Because there are people there for you to meet. We need to be going where the people are. There are, again, and I didn't anticipate this, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of bashing nominal Christianity this morning, so hang with me. There are churches all over the U.S., that are putting all of their financial resource into creating Sunday morning experiences with the idea that hopefully the lost might show up and have a good time. They're, they're, they're putting all of their resources into big events and big activities so that people will come to their campus on their terms and experience Christ the way they want them to. And I want to tell you right now, I think that we're beginning to realize that that doesn't really work. That God has called us as believers to go and to find the lost in their cultural setting. We, we are to go to them. We are to find them. We are to, to play in their basketball game or, or to, to, to go and, and to meet them in the place that, that, that they're meeting. The, the bookstore or wherever. I don't I don't, know, what, what, I don't know what people do. I'm so old, guys. I literally, like, I, I'm doing my absolute best. But you guys don't invite me out places. You know that, right? You've, there's a, there came a point, like, two years ago, no one invites me to do anything. And so I don't really know what young people do anymore. I just get up here on Sunday and guess. <laughs> don't put me in that situation. I was told by Jasmine that I would start getting invited to these taco events that you guys are, taco nights. I haven't been invited to one. You guys are out there eating tacos on Tuesdays and Friday nights all over the city. I like, I like tacos. <laughs> I, I, I would like to do that. It's cool. I, I know, I, I know. I'm old. I get it. 
Um, but, the, but the point is that all of us, even me, 38-year-old dad, you know, with a house and a manicured lawn, <laughs> there are places where I should be going to find people in particular cultural settings, and I should do as Paul, make myself like all men that I might win some, that I might win some of them along the way. Not, not all of them. They get a free will choice. They get to decide, but I will win some. God's proven that in me before. As a ministry, we need to go to places where people are hanging out and spending time, and we need to meet them in those cultural environments. Third, he goes to the academic audience. So we've had a spiritual audience, okay? We've had a cultural audience, and now he goes to the academic audience. So we see Paul adjusting himself, right, in order to go to different groups of people. So Athens was, we've talked about this before, Athens was a highly academic city, right? And so you, you might have a hard time imagining what that means, but they would, have had, they would have had a major school in Athens, and within that school there would have been philosophies, okay? Uh, ideas, ideologies, right? And as you went to school and as you listened to lectures, you would find teachers that you associated yourself with, and you would, you would glean things from them, and you would follow them around and you would say, I'm, I'm, you know, I follow this teacher or I follow that teacher. Or I, you know, th- this is what I believe. And people would sit around in a place like Athens and just learn. And so the city was full of young people, right? They're walking from, from lecture to lecture, okay? Very active and exciting place to be. Lots of young people, just like in Kansas City. And so our equivalent in ministry to that would be our, again, our college campuses, right? I don't think there's ever been a time where people haven't been going to the, to, it used to be Muddy's when we were in, 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 remember, when we were at UMKC, Crow's next to UMKC used to be a place called Muddy's. And that name was really fitting. It was kind of disgusting there, wasn't it? But it was always packed, and there was always students walking around, and you would, see, you would see them around Westport between classes or on the plaza eating together and hanging out, and this is where people would be. Why? Because they're there because they're convinced that if they gain some sort of knowledge at their university or from that philosopher or from that teacher or some sort of skill set, that their life will improve, right? Isn't that what young people do? Right? They go to college and they listen to teachers and they get influenced by them because they're convinced that if they hear the teaching and they do the things, that they'll become what they want to become. And the problem is that truth that they need, they never get it. They never get it. The thing that they're longing for, the thing that they're desperate for, the thing that's causing them to go out and to venture out and to, and to, to declare a major and go to school and do these things and get that skill set... And to get that career, it never pans out the way they want it to. The truth never actually comes. So Paul sets a great example example for us. That we ought to preach to those who are looking for the wrong truths. We should be preaching to the people who are looking for the wrong truths. They are looking, you know. They're looking for something. And we've got to go find them. They're at the Kansas City Art Institute because they're looking for something. They think that they want to be the next great painter or designer or animator. They think that. So they're looking for, for, for something. So we just whoop, slip in, 
and say, hey, did you know what you were actually looking for was the gospel? All this time, you, you thought it was a good career. Do you, you know what I'm saying? This is our responsibility. This is, listen, this is what God has called us to. It's, it's to go to these people in these places and to win people. That's what our ministry does. And we can look to Paul as an example for that. Now, it's among these types of people that we see uh, Paul spending the remainder of the chapter addressing. So for the sake of time, we're going to continue moving on, even though I feel like I could keep talking about that. I won't. Verse 18 says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. Okay, so, like I told you before, there's these philosophical schools, okay? And there's a group of people here that are present, hearing Paul preach, called the Epicureans. The Epicureans. Now, these folks were essentially hedonists. Okay? And what I mean by that is that they were given over. They thought that the highest philosophy of life, the highest ideal, was to suppress painful experiences. Trial, suffering, difficulty. To try to suppress those and avoid them and spend their lives doing nothing but fill their life with pleasure. Sexual pleasure, drunkenness, partying. That this, was, that this was the highest value in life. Now, we have people like the Epicureans on our university campuses. Right? Okay? They're generally in fraternities and sororities. Just putting that out there. You can find them there. Okay? Sorry for those of you who are in fraternities and sororities. Um, they are at the bars on Friday nights. They're in the classroom during the week. But all they're, all they're doing, the philosophy that they're gaining, they're only using it to help justify more pleasure. All of the education and the learning and the future career, all of that, all of the intents of their life are, are built and put into place so that they might justify seeking more and more and more and more pleasure. And it changes and it adapts with their life. And early on, it's partying and drinking. And eventually, they might get married or they might, you know, they might get an apartment in the river market. And they might, they might live a life where they get to do what they want to do all the time. And they try to fill their lives with pleasure all the time. We encounter these people, don't we? We also encounter, encounter this other group, the Stoics. These people were the exact opposite, essentially, of the Epicureans. The Stoics were, were basically what we would refer to as fatalists, okay? They believed that the height of knowledge and virtue was accepting nature's ultimate plan. And that God, or the gods, were in everything. They were in you and me. They were in the trees. They were in the buildings. They were in the, in the, in the pews and in the, in the walls. And, and that God was basically everywhere. And that there were certain things about life that were just determined for them. Okay, And because of that, they were very, we, we use this term now to, to, to describe an expressive quality, right? They were very stoic. They chose to accept their realities. And that the highest knowledge and form of virtue in life was basically to go for the ride and function as the God that they were. Right? To be very serious about life. To be, be very thoughtful. Be very well read. And to keep their body under control at all times. Now we know these people too, don't we? We encounter people just like this. People who are, who are always learning. 
And they ascribe to it, they generally ascribe to an ideology very, very tightly. And they want to debate because they think that they're the smartest person that they know. They're, they're a walking Wikipedia. They've got all the information. You, you, you try to engage them about any topic, and they've got something to say and an opinion about it. And they take themselves very seriously because they're a very serious person. And their primary objective in life is maybe not pleasure, but it is respect. They want respect. They want respect from their parents. They want respect from their peers. They want that good job. They want to go to university and they want to learn because they want respect. But listen to me. Pleasure runs out. And you don't always get respect. And those are very miserable ways of living. And Paul preaches to them. Now, these two philosophical schools of thought disagreed with each other diametrically, right? And yet they agreed on one thing, that Paul was an idiot. They referred to him as a babbler, an unintelligent dummy. Let's read on. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. Like these guys, listen real quick, these guys were so clueless on the gospel they thought that when Paul was preaching, right, it says gods, it's plural, right? They were convinced that when he was saying, talking about Jesus and the resurrection, that Jesus was a God and that the resurrection was a God. That's how unfamiliar they were with the gospel. Now, to tie this back in and make this practical, you know that there's people on your campuses and in your life and at your jobs that are that clueless about the gospel. You know that, right? They don't know the truth of Jesus Christ. They don't know the story. They don't know about his death, burial, and resurrection. They just don't know. Now, even though they thought that Paul was a babbler, some found him interesting enough. And so they took him and they brought him unto Areopagus. Now, Areopagus just means, uh, you know, the translation is the hill of Mars, right? Eros, or Mars, was the god of war, okay? He was, he was a god of war, god of battle, military god. And so there was this place called Areopagus, or Mars Hill. And historically, in Athens, this is a place where the aristocrats would go to hear people out, to hear people debate. They would, they would also execute civil justice there, so people would be put on trial there, like Socrates was put on trial there. That's what history tells us. Okay, so Paul was in this exact same place, and they wanted to hear him out. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him into Are, uh, unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For, listen to me. Here's the, here's the main point. For all the Athenians and strangers which were, were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So the passage makes it clear. This was a culture obsessed with learning and knowledge. That was their form of entertainment. And I have to say that in a Wikipedia culture, there's a lot of people in our world today that are just like that. You know them. Everyone's a know-it-all nowadays. When I, was, when I was young, I felt like it was okay to be a little stupid. Like, yeah, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. And that was like an okay thing to say. But today, you've got to know everything about everything. It's a lot of pressure. And that's the way it was here in the Athenian culture. These people sat around all day long hearing new things, gaining new knowledge, 
Now, some of you in this room, you know you fall prey to that sin. Okay? You got to be careful with that. But here's the issue. 2 Timothy describes people like this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 says, Ever learning. These people are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These are the types of people with itching ears, always looking for new things, but never finding the one thing. You know, sometimes as a father uh, with my kids, I find myself doing my absolute darndest to make them think like an adult does. Isn't that weird? Like, these are kids, right? And as a dad, a lot of my time and energy is spent trying to get them to think like grown-ups do, right? In my mind, that's teaching them, bringing them along in knowledge, helping make them aware of the world that they live in and make them think like an adult. But listen, listen. Jesus Christ made it very, very clear then unless you come to him as a child, then you can't actually ever come to a place of faith. Our, our beliefs, our faith in Jesus Christ, listen to me, there's an aspect for which there's evidence and we can present intellectually the, the, the well, we should be able to do this. We should be able to apologetically present Jesus Christ and prove him because truth is truth is truth. Truth always wins. It always punctures holes into false ideologies and, and philosophies. It always does that. It'll always win out. There's an aspect for which we should be able to do that. Paul certainly could. Paul was very learned. He could do that. But here's the point. There isn't any person that can be convinced intellectually through argument that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that cannot be unconvinced of the very same thing. If it's a matter of convincing then what is faith? See, at a certain point, you have to come to the gospel and say to yourself, I believe because it's simple and it's good and my heart burns when I hear about it and there's nothing more appealing to me in all of my life than the man Jesus Christ. And I, I feel it and I know that it's true deep down inside of me and I want it. That's how children come to Christ. They don't need to know the ins and outs of dispensational theology. They don't even have to understand the difference between Old Testament law and the New Testament law of grace. They don't have to know the differences between the, those things. They have to simply know that Jesus Christ loved them and died for them, and he wants to set them free. That's all they have to know. And the problem is that in our culture, We've, we've, we, people have itching ears and they just want to hear a new thing. So the question for us is, how do we approach them? We've talked about our audiences, but how do we approach them? This is what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of, of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen to me, listen. Paul was smart, smarter than any of us in this room, probably. Except Connor. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Sorry, she hates when I do that. It's been a while. I wanted to call you out. You're very smart. I just thought I'd. Sorry. Paul was very smart. But listen to me. Here's his, here was his approach to ministry. 
I know nothing. Everything I know, in fact, is dung. I count it dung. Everything I've learned, everything I've done, I just I count it as worthless. The only thing I know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I know. That's all I know. It's all I ever want to talk about. That's the only thing I ever want to think on. It's the only thing I ever want to present. It's the only, only thing of importance, not how I vote or what political beliefs I hold to or, 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 or what I believe about this or that or those opinions or, 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 you know. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I know. Which leads us to our key point. Number three. Regardless of your audience, the message is never modified. Jesus and the resurrection. It's never modified. See, here's the problem. Because we live in a Wikipedia generation, and everybody's a know-it-all, that we think in order to properly reach the lost, that we have to present some sort of relevant argumentation. That we've got to be smart that we've got to be well-spoken. That the message should somehow be made palatable. And we, we live in a world where people call themselves Christian, and they don't want to talk about the blood of Jesus Christ because it's too gory. And they don't want to talk about hell, and they've erased hell from their Bible because it seems too judgy. And what we do is we, we, we extract these things from our faith system or from our gospel presentation with a, with a desire to be more palatable. And when we do so, we don't realize that we're actually blaspheming the word of God. All I know is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bled out and died for me. And that he stole the keys to hell. That he went down to the pit. And that three days later, he resurrected and delivered captivity captive. That all men, through faith, might receive his grace. And if I sound foolish for that, so be it. Some will believe, so some won't. But the point is that Paul never modifies the message. It never changes. His audience might change. His, some of his approach might change. But the message, it stays the same. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Is that why you have such a hard time sharing it with people? That if you were really honest with yourself and you really thought about it, the reason that you haven't shared the gospel with the person at your workplace after months and months and maybe years of knowing them is because you're ashamed of the simplicity and the foolishness of the death, burial, and resurrection? Of the purpose, the person in your class that's in the same program, the engineering program or the painting program or whatever it is that you're in, and you come in contact with them all the time and you've seen them, you've known them for years now, and you've never shared the gospel with them, is it actually not because you're waiting for the right door to open? I think that door opened when they were in your class over and over again. Maybe it is that you're actually ashamed of the simplicity of the gospel. I don't know. Only you can answer that. Paul was not ashamed. Okay, so... Let's move on. Cool? So we've considered the audience. We've kind of, we've been considering essentially the approach here. 
what should our heart attitude be in light of the world that we live in, in a city, in an in a, in a urban setting like the one that we're in? There's a lot of know-it-alls. There's a lot of know-it-alls. A lot of education, a lot of learning. How are you going to approach that? Now, the last thing we need to do is consider the argument. Consider the argument. What, what's the argument that you're going to make? What are some of the things that we can learn from Paul's message that we should also be familiar with? Concepts, structure to the way that we present the gospel. Are you ready? Is, is everybody still with me? I'm, we've got about five or six more minutes together, and I've got to get through this thing, and I need to know that you're with me. You with me? Okay, let's do it. We're going to start by reading in verse 22. We're going to read for a minute here. When uh, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as, as certain also of, of your poets have said, for we are, also his, we are all also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Okay, so here's the very first thing that we need to look at. The first thing he points out is their idolatry. They're idolatry. He points it out. You are idolaters. I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. And then he goes on and he says, look, you're so superstitious that, that, and that, that you have set up this, this placard, this, this idol that says to the unknown God, just in case you've missed some gods along the way. Like if... Like, if there was a God that you weren't sure about, that you needed, you could just go to this unknown God and he would fill the gaps for you. That's how superstitious you are. Now here's the assertion that is made. The assertion is that if you don't worship Jesus, you worship self. Isn't that true? If you don't worship Jesus, you worship self. You just choose from the pantheon of gods, however you feel that particular day, week, month, you select from that God, and that's the one that you choose to worship because that God is the most self-serving. That's the way all, all idolatry has worked. That's the way all false religion has ever worked. That's the way superstition works. You pick and you choose whatever God is the most self-serving in that moment. So the point is this. If you don't worship Jesus, you probably are worshiping you. And that's true now, and that was true then. Everyone is worshiping their own gods. And in our world of pluralism, that's okay. In a, in a pluralistic reality, that's okay. Everyone's okay. You do you. This is my truth. Anybody else tired of that statement? My truth. Well, this is my truth. If everybody's got my truth, 
There is no truth. That's idolatry. That is vain worship. It's empty. Now, my point to you is this. When Paul preaches, he makes sure to address this issue. You are an idolater. Any person that you ever witness to, if you don't bring them to the point where they realize that they're a sinner, that they're an idolater, then you can't move forward from that point. When you're sharing the gospel, it's of, it's of, it's of crucial importance that they understand the, their own personal weakness and depravity. They have to understand that. They have to know that they've only just been worshiping self up to that moment. It's crucial. The world is religious in that people find their gods and they worship them. And yet there's no consistency, no truth. And we have the ability, we have the ability to introduce them to truth. And that comes by way of repentance. So, so the first thing we have to make clear is you are idolatrous. The next thing we have to make clear is you need to repent. You need to repent. Repent means turn. Go the other direction. The opposite way that you are going right now. Verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. In other words, God's permitted it up to this point. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So the appeal is to repent of the sin that you have in your life. Paul says to King Agrippa in chapter 26 of Acts, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. You see this over and over again, this message of repentance in the book of Acts. We see it over and over again. The message is, you want to follow Jesus, then you've got to turn from the gods that you're currently following. Turn, let's go. Let's follow Christ. So you are idolatrous. You, you need to repent. That has to be the message. Guys, listen to me. I think the most neglected aspect of gospel sharing is probably this one. You need to repent. You've got to go a different way. The way that you're going, you can't go back there anymore. You need to do the works meet for repentance. You have to turn away, and you have to not want to go back. You might trip and fall. We're not talking about that. What we're saying is you don't want to ever go back to that. Let's go the right way. Repent. Turn from your sin. We don't talk about repentance. It's another one of those judgy words, I guess. You need to know. That's the third thing. You need to know something. You need to know something very important, and it's kind of a scary thing to share. Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in, right, in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. You need to repent because, because he's going to come and he's going to judge you. If you want to avoid the, the judgment, you need to repent. Because there's a day coming where he's going to judge all men. Based on whether or not they put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One day, Christ himself will return. And all men will stand before, before him and he will judge them according to their works. And guess what? He's going to find them all idolatrous. All of them. And there will be a judgment, and it's called hell. And it is a reality. It's a reality. And people need to know it. They need to know. They need to know there's a judgment. They need to know that they have to repent in order to be saved from, from everlasting judgment. Either you can sound judgy now, or they can live in everlasting judgment forever. 
You decide. So the point here is that the admonition is that there is an appointed day of judgment. That's the admonition. It means warning. There's a warning associated with it. So you've got to let them know that they're idolatrous. You've got to let them know that they need to repent. You've got to let them know that if they don't, that there's judgment that is coming. It's imminent. You have to warn them. That's a part of sharing the gospel. And then they need to know peace. Continue on, it says, Whereof he hath made assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. The assurance is that Christ died to save you. That judgment, it's avoidable. It's avoidable. Listen to me. Just repent and turn to Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul, and worship him. All four of these things have to be present and ready anytime you're sharing the gospel. You can't be afraid of them. Because souls are at stake. Remember the burden of the city? Remember that? It's crucial that you know this and that you don't modify your message to, to accommodate the weaknesses of the people around, around you. They have to know that they're wicked sinners, that they need to repent, that if they don't, there will be judgment, but there is a way of escape, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he died for their, their sins and rose again. They need to know that because that's where their assurance is and that's where their peace is coming from. Romans chapter 4, verse 23 says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to, him, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Jesus Christ is the only way. There is not, it's, it isn't a, he's not just one God to add to the pantheon of gods. You don't get to just mingle him in among the others. You know, he sets himself apart. That's why repentance is necessary. You turn from the old idols and you turn to the one true God. This has to be the message. It has to be on our lips. We have to be unafraid. And we have to go to new audiences all the time. And when those audiences come to us, we have to be ready to say this very thing, the same thing, over and over again for the rest of our lives until we die. And then we get judged for whether or not we did that for our entire lives until the day we die. And you get your reward based on whether or not you did that. Okay. The, last, the very last thing in closing. The worship team can come up. So we've, we've considered several things here. Audience, we've considered argument. Now, now let's consider the aftermath. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's cool. We can handle that, can't we? I mean, if we're going to turn the world upside down, we better be okay with it. Some mocked. And others said... We will hear the again of this matter. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll come to Bible study, sure. Call, call me, text me. I'll come to Bible study. Week after week, right? Oh, I was busy. My, my mom had this thing. I, I couldn't make it. Sorry, man. Okay. So some will brush you off. Yeah, we'll hear you about that again later. So Paul departed from among them how be it? Certain men clave unto him and, and believed. Among the whom, which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I thought about this for a little bit. I think it's really interesting 
that several people come, came to faith. They don't tell us how many. Just people came to faith. But two names are mentioned. This Dionysus, the Areopagite, was a person of the aristocratic class. And then there was a woman of, named Damaris, who was apparently not that important socially. I just think it's really interesting that, that God wants to use you to reach all kinds of people. And that people are going to get saved. There will be some that mock. There will be some that brush you off. But there's going to be people that get saved. And they're going to believe. And you will have been used to impact their eternal reality. And that's what we, that's what we do this for. That is the purpose. It's the reason why we have breath. It's the reason that the day you, you, you got saved, you didn't just disappear and go to heaven. He left you here to do this very thing. And we've got to be ready to do it unabashedly. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, bless the remainder of our service time. If we're staying to hear, uh, to hear Jason preach or, or whether we're going to hang out with our friends or whatever it is that we're doing, Lord, that the burden of the city would always be with us and that the preaching would be always on our tongue. That we would, that we would be unabashed and we would be relentless in our sharing of the, of, of, the, of the person of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that we'd be unapologetic for what we believe, that we would be unafraid of those who mock us, and that we would just do the work, and that one day, Lord, we know that you will reward all men accordingly. And so, Lord, teach us how to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.